G'day, and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode, we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time interacting with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to underwater photographers, scuba divers, citizen scientists, and anyone with an intense passion for the ocean. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me on this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Drew Hamilton, and he's a wildlife viewing guide and photographer who specializes in bears. And today we're going to be talking about a creature that's not always thought of as a marine mammal, but technically is the polar bear. Welcome to the show, Drew. Hey, right on, Matt. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, because you're in Alaska at the moment getting ready for uh, bear season, aren't you? Yeah, and it just kind of works out that, uh, you know, Alaska time zone and, and Australia time zone, neither of us are having to get up at 3 a.m. or anything crazy like that to do this. Thanks for scheduling it this way. <laughs> no worries. So tell us, first tell us, how did you end up becoming kind of a polar bear guide and specialist? Well, so my background is in brown bears, grizzly bears, actually. I've been working here in Alaska for 20 years. I worked for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game doing a a bunch of uh, brown bear stuff. And then quite a few years ago now, somebody said, hey, you go see some polar bears. And I said, sure, why not? Who doesn't want to go see polar bears? So I ended up going to uh, Churchill, Manitoba, which is the self-proclaimed polar bear capital of the world. It's uh, right dead smack in the center of the, the Western Hudson Bay population of bears. And I just fell in love. It was just kind of felt like home. It's a, it's a Northern community, much like I, I live here in Alaska. So the transition is, is not that big. Um, it's interesting where I am right now in Anchorage. Uh, we're at about 61 degrees North latitude. When I go to Churchill, uh, it's about 58 degrees North. So from where I am, uh, I actually have to go South to, to look for polar bears, which is kind of an interesting, interesting twist. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I mean, it must be amazing seeing these animals in the wild. Like how, how close do you get as a guide or a photographer? Well, that's always a, a trick question. I definitely uh, had close proximity encounters where we're using vehicles um, to view polar bears. So it's not like we're, uh, we're right up in their business or they're not right up in our business. You definitely don't get as close to polar bears as you do to say brown bears here in Alaska. Like when we're going out looking for, for bears, uh, you know, on the Katmai coast and things like that. It's relatively close proximity, no fences. When we go to Churchill, uh, we roll around in uh, little Toyota forerunners, basically. And so you walk around, you look for, uh, you look for polar bears, and then you always have the, the shelter of the vehicle uh, where you can, you can fall back if you need, but it's really more about anticipating where that bear is going, what that bear's mood is, uh, things like that. So it's best just to avoid situations before they might arise. Always back in the vehicle by the time the bear gets close and it's it's no big deal. And we already talked about how technically they're marine mammals, um, though they are non-aquatic. So I think they technically qualify for the podcast. Maybe we'll have to put an asterisk by it or something. Um, but they're waiting for that ice to form. 
Um, so Hudson Bay will completely, um, so it's open water all summer and they kind of bunch up on that shoreline. And the reason they congregate uh, around Churchill is due to a counterclockwise uh, current in Hudson Bay. It brings ice and things that form uh, down that uh, west shore of Hudson Bay, and it gets jammed up on it. There's a little east-west shoreline. So that's the first place that ice is going to form. And that's, and the bears know that. And so that's their first opportunity to get back out on the ice and start hunting seals. And so it's a uh, it's been going on a long, long time and you go and you'll see, you know, you're just driving the bears walking around on the tundra. Like it's no big deal. It's perfectly normal when you're there, you know, the first couple you get excited and then you realize they're probably just rocks <laughs> along the coastline. And then one will, then one will get up and start to move. And then you're like, Oh dang, there's a polar bear. Um, and it really, to be even in relatively close proximity to them is a, is a powerful uh, experience. We've all heard stories about polar bears and, and frankly, most of those are, are just stories. And so, you know, emotional reaction ranges from, you know, people who have sought them out are generally not going to be afraid of them. They want to be safe, but they, they're not afraid of them. But to the other end, you've got people who just break down crying because it is such a powerful experience. You know, something you've read about in books, something you've seen on, on Netflix, something you've seen documentaries on, and suddenly to be seeing it firsthand, it's just a very, very powerful experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine it would be amazing because, I mean, polar bears, so polar bears are, can get to over three meters when they stand on their legs. So they're a massive animal. Yes, three meters. I had to do some math. In my, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but that is exactly right. And one of the things you will hear them describe fancy literature and things like that. And they'll say, oh, they're the largest land predator. Uh, but technically they are marine mammals. I straight up rip off uh, Stephen Amstrup, who's a polar bear biologist. And I heard, because I always struggle with, well, what are marine mammals? But he, uh, he had a very good way to describe them. And he said they're the largest non-aquatic predator on the planet, which makes perfect sense because they're kind of in that gray zone. In terms of you know, how are they classified as marine mammals? It's because their habitat is sea ice. You know, if a bear had its its choice, it would stay out on the ice and hunt seals uh, the whole time. And so they're, they're using that platform. They're out on the ocean, on the ice. And then you have to think that whole ecosystem as basically inverted from what we think of. We're used to being on land and look at ecosystem that kind of goes from the soil up. But that ecosystem that the, the bears preside over goes from the sea down. So you'll have algaes and coccolithophores, little things living under the ice, which then feed bigger things and feed big, bigger things, which then feed seals, which then work their way. They have to bear some time, which feed the polar bears. Yeah. So, so before we jump into how polar bears hunt seals, tell us exactly like what a polar bear is and how it kind of differs from your standard like big brown bear or something so they're actually very closely related um, if you look at uh, the evolution of polar bears over the last i don't know million years or so they have differentiated from grizzly bears from brown bears from ursus arctis so the selective pressures that made polar bears are very intense and if you were to compare them to their closest relatives, the brown bears, in brown bears, you see a lot more variation in terms of colors and things like that. Those selective pressures create polar bears. If you're not white, you're dead. If you don't have robust curved claws for gripping ice and gripping seals, you're dead. If you don't have you know, a robust nasal cavity for warming air to go in before it goes into your lungs, you're dead. They are, uh, you know, brown bears are also... Uh, Omnivores, they'll eat 
pretty much anything. Technically, you could probably classify polar bears as lipivores. They need fat. So if a, if a healthy male polar bear catches a, a seal out on the sea ice, they're basically to strip the fat off of it. Their body is so efficient at processing that fat. It goes, most of that seal is going to go right onto that polar bear as fat. So that is important both for a mechanism for getting through the lean times. So, you know, when there, there are no seals, they have these big fat stores that will help them survive extended periods on land. And really a lot of kind of feast or famine, being able to survive in such intense, uh, intensely cold temperatures. Again, you got to be well adapted. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I was reading that they have that 10, like about 10 centimeters or four inches of fat directly under their skin just for warmth. Well, and then on top of that, just how variable they are over the, the course of the season. If you see them, you know, the day before they go out on the ice when they're on their, their absolute skinniest, and then you were to see that same bear um, on its first day off ice or run into it out, you know, at the end of a, a hunting season, they're hard to tell. I mean, just because they can go through such amazing physical transformation uh, in terms of, of, all right, we'll just call them fat. We're not a fat shaming. It's a, it's a you know, it's a point of pride with them. You know, this is, this is how they survive. So, uh, so it's a compliment for a polar bear to be fat. Yeah. And so tell us, so now I'm, I really want to hear about their hunting though. So tell us about the, where it starts and how a polar bear goes about, you know, capturing its favorite prey. Well, so I think when most people think of sea ice, they kind of think of it as a pretty uh, uniform platform, uh, but it's it's really way more dynamic and goes through a lot of different phases than I think people realize until until they see it, until they experience it. Uh, and so these polar bears have to be well adapted to hunt in a variety of different ice conditions. You think about right when it first forms and they're first getting out there and, you know, it's not even stable yet. And so it's moving like it's constantly in motion. And so they have to be able to either sneak up on, on a seal or as that ice starts to form. Uh, they will, uh, they'll find seal breathing holes and they'll use a more uh, holding technique where they'll find the hole, they'll sit there and sit there and sit there and sit there. It's not the most exciting, uh, <laughs> exciting thing to see uh, until a, a seal pokes its head up and then boom, they grab it uh, kind of thing. And then you think about it again, just before, you know, just before spring and that ice goes away, you know, it might be about 50% ice cover is when those bears start coming off the ice. And so they're hopping from ice. We've all seen the pictures, you know, hopping ice flow to ice flow and, you know, smelling, looking for seals and then being able to either stealthily swim up underneath or climb on the ice flow there. There just have to be uh, so many different techniques employed. Now, unfortunately, that adaptability doesn't extend to uh, being able to live on land or things like that. Um, so there are constraints to that. Uh, we mentioned that they're lipivores. They need that fat. And if you're looking at for terrestrial sources of, of fat calories, there just aren't any that are going to support uh, any significant population of polar bears. That's why the sea ice, and when, when everybody, when we talk about how polar bears are being impacted by climate change, it was a loss of hunting, basically. They can't hunt seals without that ice. And there's nothing else to eat on land. Yeah, and I guess the reason why they need that fat is so they can survive those extreme temperatures. Yeah, thermal regulation is, is a huge, huge part of yeah, it. Yeah, because if they, because I've seen they can run at like about 40 kilometers an hour. I don't know what that is in miles, but it's pretty fast. But when they do, they get overheated. 
because they're just such so good at insulating because of that fat. Well, and you you look at um, yeah, they are very fast, but they do overheat after a, a short distance. Uh, but you you look at uh, you know everything down to their their body shape. You know they've got their their volume to surface ratio. Uh, they're very well adapted to whatever heat they're producing in there. They keep it. And on top of that, their fur is very well insulating. And then you've got different capillaries right along their dorsal region, right across their shoulders, basically, that they can use when they're starting to overheat, can start pumping blood through those capillaries. Part of thermoregulation is going the other way too. It's not just keeping you warm, but you got to cool off too. Cause you think they're so well adapted for the cold in the summer, right? So you'll, you'll see them, they'll, uh, <laughs> they do, they do like to go swimming you'll see them uh, uh, kind of laying on their side or their back and they're opening their pits, you know, into an area where they have less hair. Uh, so they'll lift their legs, things like that. They'll dig holes to get down to the permafrost and just lay on that ice or any, any snow they can find. But on those really hot days, yeah, I was out to them. I'm cold weather adapted as well, <laughs> being in Alaska as long as I have. Uh, so maybe that's one of the reasons I was on polar bears. They do, uh, they do occur in some of my favorite climates. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm still, I'm still fixated with swimming and stuff and the hunting, but have, I want to ask, have you ever seen them after they've had a meal? Cause they'd probably covered in a bit of seal blood having a bath. Cause I've heard that's something they do. Well, so where I see them, uh, they, cause I'm, I'm basically right before they go out to, uh, to the ice to start hunting seals. So we've seen them catch some seals along the shoreline it gets a little crazy <laughs> or, you know, beluga whales wash up different, different things. There are different food sources that, that will be available to them. And so, yeah, one of the most common ways they'll clean themselves is in the snow. I mean, you think they're out on the ice, there's, there's not a ton of fresh water or anything for them to necessarily clean themselves with. So they will do a lot of uh, snow bathing. And that is, <laughs> it's actually quite entertaining to watch is you're just basically rolling in the snow, shaking it off, rolling in the snow, shaking it off. It's kind of your, uh, shampoo, rinse, repeat. Oh, it's, I mean, they're just amazing animals. Just having a bit of a snow bath or like, I, yeah. well, that hygiene is part of their thermal regulation too. Cause we're getting oil and, and things like that in that fur, the insulative value goes way down. And so, um, they do have to stay clean to make sure they're in tip top shape to be able to handle those cold, cold temperatures. And so when they're not out, like kind of catch seals, what are they doing? Cause I've heard they can be quite playful and stuff like that. <laughs> so one of the one of the behaviors that Churchill is known for is uh, sparring. Uh, so the bears will will actually when they start to get together in, in big numbers, particularly the large males, they they wrestle, they play, they fight, and you think about they're counting calories, right? They don't have a lot coming in. Why are they getting all these calories to play? And and it really is they're they're bored. You know they're waiting for that sea and. You know, you think about it from a bear's perspective, and they they've been showing up on the shores of Hudson Bay right there for their entire lives. They see the same bears year after year after year after year. After a while, they, you know, once that bear's behavior has become predictable to them, short of calling it friendship, because once they get out on the eye, I mean, there it's a competition out there. They're competing for mates, but in that moment in time, their goals align up and they're just past the time. And you'll, you'll, people will say, oh, you know, they're sizing other up for, for mating season out on the ice. And that's why they spar really, um, the more no behavior that's, that's a, that's a byproduct. That's not a cause. And so it really, it stems from boredom 
and familiarity. You know, they show up, hey, here's Steve, let's play kind of thing. And certain bears have personalities that just lend themselves to play. You see it in brown, you see it in all species of bear, really. You know, when you start to get to know individual animals, you realize their personalities, their skill sets, they all have different ways of, of dealing with a harsh environment. They make life and death decisions on a daily basis. I think on some level, they're getting a lot of the same physiological benefits from play that we are. There's going to be an endorphin release. There's social connection, passing the time. Uh, you know, the first polar bears I ever saw was here in Alaska. And we were, we were up on the North Slope, a village called Kaktovik. And so we're in a boat. There's this big female bear sitting on, the, uh, sitting on one of the barrier islands there. We parked the boat. We're staring at her. She stared at us. Um, and so after a couple minutes, she, she actually, she picked up a rock in her mouth and started spinning her head around and threw that rock out into the ocean as far as she could. And I just thought about, you know, all the field camps and things I've worked in. And, you know, if, if chucking rocks is not a sign of boredom, I don't know what is. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that's awesome. So what, what's your favorite polar bear story? What's the best thing you can remember? Oh, Well, so I'm a photographer at heart. And so a lot of my, my fondest memories tend to be the ones that are, uh, <laughs> are nice photos. But there were a few years ago in Churchill, there were this young males, kind of on the young, younger end of adult in their lifespan. And they hung around for weeks. And you just knew that on your daily tour, if you could find those two bears, they were going to put on a show. And I swear they couldn't hang out for more than 20 minutes without wrestling and playing and you'd watch these bears and it would, you know, it's, it'd start like one of them would just bite the other one's ear or, you know, just antagonistic kind of thing. And then, you know, they'd start playing and then one of them would get too rough and then it would, you know, they want to turn into a little bit of a brawl. I don't know they were siblings, but there was a certain, you know, relatability to that. I don't know if folks have siblings, you know what I mean? And it would just escalate into this full on fight. And then they would, you know, go their separate ways and you next day, boom, they'd be right back together. Hoping they're going to be back next. I did miss last year due to COVID, but uh, I'm planning on being back there this season to uh, see if we can track those guys down. Yeah. Good luck. I mean, I I wondered, so how many um, pups or cubs do polar bears have? It's usually going to be one or two. I have seen triplets before. Uh, they were yearling triplets, so they'd actually they were going out onto the ice onto the ice for the second time when I saw them. So it's it's not unheard of, but it's not the norm. You start with a couple, and then um, there is a high mortality rate on cubs, particularly in the first year. And so you know, end up with one would be right in the normal. Yeah. So these bears that you saw could have potentially been brothers, but probably just yeah, as you mentioned, bored kind of friends. It must be fantastic when you're taking your photographers out there to to get these two and be like oh they're fighting or you know it's like they're actors you know well and and you know it's it is important if you're going out with to have somebody that's got experience watching polar bears and can can help decode what's going on in front of you i mean that's part of the enjoyment we're in this to learn right that's why we enjoy going out and doing these things and if so if you've got somebody who's got experience with figuring out what's going on it really i think adds a, a lot yeah well do you have any cool facts or any like really amazing facts that you find that blow your mind about polar bears? 
Um, I mean, I, whether, you know, whether it comes down to being, being lipivores or, you know, when you start to look into how they thermoregulate, which we've talked about a little bit, uh, bear reproduction, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, serial monogamous. They mate with multiple partners over the course of the mating season. Uh, you couple that with induced ovulation. So every successful mating bout is going to trigger another egg release. Uh, so if you've got three starting out, uh, they could potentially have three different fathers. You couple that with this delayed implantation. So mating season, we'll call it um, like April. So multiple partners, they're going to have uh, several fertilized eggs that go through a few cell divisions um, until <laughs> they go through the whole foraging uh, season, getting fatter and fatter and fatter. And then female polar bears are the only ones that have to den uh, because they, they birth in the den. And that's where, where a lot of that, the initial develop, early development of polar bears occurs outside the mother, but in the den. So when, about the time she goes into the den is when her body's going to go through this natural check. And so only the number of blastocysts that her body can handle will then implant. So nature's not going to give her more than she can handle. Yeah. Okay. So she's had a really good season. And she's eaten a lot of seal fat, then she might have triplets. But if it's been a bit mm -hmm. scarce on the seals, her body will naturally be like, nah, I'm just gonna have the one egg this time. Well, and that relates directly to one of the, the indicators for struggling populations. When you look at, you know, the female body mass, what's the average female body mass in that population? Once they get to a certain body mass on the on the smaller end of the scale, they just stop reproducing. So, like if you if you're looking at you know, trends in a population and that female body mass is, is trending downward. That is a big red flag. Yeah. And I, I guess the reduction in sea ice is one major contributor to that, isn't it? It is. And it's not necessarily, we talk about uh, polar bears as a whole. Yes, they are going to be hugely impacted by the loss of sea ice and the, the, the changes that are, that are occurring due to climate change, uh, but it's not impacting them all uh, uniformly. So there are certain populations um, that are kind of in this, maybe the, the Western Hudson Bay population, which is the most studied population in the world. And, you know, it's kind of just gradually going down. You look at the Southern Beaufort population here in Alaska, uh, which is uh, kind of has a, an interesting twist in that, you know, the ice is now receding beyond the continental shelf. So with those polar bears to go out on the ice, um, there, there aren't going to be any seals for them kind of, they have to decide, do they take their chances on land or do they go out on the ice and get nothing versus TC population, which by most accounts is doing uh, quite well. Body conditions are good. Number are good. Um, and as you, you get down into the, the different subpopulations, you'll find that they're all, they're adapting within the ice regime, but ultimately, you know, there's a stopping point where they won't be able to, to adapt any longer. And so, uh, I mean, just when we're talking about do they decide to go onto the ice or not, I have a crazy fact or one that I read that they've like measured individuals swimming over a thousand kilometers or 600 miles in like one continuous hit. Like that, that's definitely a marine animal. Anything that swims for like 10 days straight, right? <laughs> and while they, while they can do that, you know, and it, it's, it's a testament to just their physical prowess that they can just straight up do that. It's not ideal. And it's unfortunate that they do need to make longer and longer swims. One of their swims, and I don't know if it's specifically the one you were referring to, but it was a, a mom with a, a cub that was forced to make that, make a long swim like that. And while mom can do it, the cub could not. 
kind of thing. So the more the more they're going to have to it's going to have a negative impact on the population. Yeah. So she was making that long swim in search of sea ice. Well, she was probably trying to get off the uh, come, coming to shore after the ice is re- uh, no longer productive for, for seal hunting. Uh, Getting back <laughs> where you don't have to swim. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess. Yeah. So because she they give their they birth their cubs on the ice in caves on the ice and then they go to land. Or how does it work? Well, different populations are going to have different denning habitats. And you look at uh, places like, well, like keep coming back to the Western Hudson Bay population, but they, uh, they, a lot of them are den on land. Uh, they'll go into areas in uh, Wapusk National Park and then some spots down in the Southern Bay, down in Ontario. You look at places in Russia like Wrangell Island, uh, where they'll den on land, Svalbard. And then other bears are going to den out on the sea ice. You know, they'll, they'll dig a little den and go in and, and give birth there. And one of the things you're seeing, particularly in areas where the ice has become more erratic, is you're seeing bears shift their behavior to, they might've denned on the ice before, but the ice isn't available. So they do go den on land, which is tricky. I mean, they are, they are able to adapt. And so that bear is dealing with that situation. These bears are on land. Uh, and that's where people are. So you're going to see uh, more bear human conflict arise in that situation. Here in Alaska, you know, a lot of villages are right in, are going to be dealing with a lot more bear human conflict. The oil field up on the North Slope, you're seeing more and more bears denning on land near, near oil fields and things like that. And so if you're really wanting to protect these species, you need to be highly aware of what's going on with the, the denning habitat in, in your in your neighborhood, so to speak. And it really is, if we want to have bears in this world, we need to make it happen. You know, we have to choose to to keep bears around because if you just keep kicking that can down the road, um, ultimately it's it's not going to last forever. Yeah, because I think there's only about 20 to 30,000 individual polar bears left, isn't there? Yep, that's the the census. I will say there are, uh, you know, that that's a pretty good number. There are some gray areas. Um, there's not necessarily a lot of research going on in parts of Russia and things like that that do make up significant portions of their habitat. But that twenty to thirty thousand is is a pretty solid estimate. Well, just before we kind of wrap up, if people want to see polar bears and want to interact with them or get photos or anything, what's the best way and what are some pitfalls to avoid? Well. I assume everybody wants to see polar bears. <laughs> so, uh, so pitfalls, you know, I definitely would not go necessarily do it by yourself uh, kind of thing. I would definitely do some research into the locations and, and go with a reputable guide. If you ever find yourself just on the side of the road looking for polar bears by yourself, don't do that. <laughs> and obviously this is what I do is to head to Churchill, Manitoba every year in October and November actually really starting in, in July, you can start to see bears coming off the ice. And the best day of bear viewing, theoretically, is the day before the ice freezes. <laughs> exactly when that's going to be. It's been more and more variable uh, the last few years. But yeah, I would come to Churchill or, there, you know, other places you can you can get up to the village in, in Alaska, uh, Kaktovik. Uh, I've got some friends that do polar bears tours there. 
Um, it's really kind of hard to get there. For folks that are traveling from Europe, a lot of people will go to Svalbard, head, get on a boat and head up there. Um, it's a great Arctic experience. There, you're starting to see more and more tours going to Russia, going to Wrangell Island and places like that. Whatever it's your budget or whatever fits photographic goals or what, what is it's driving you to see polar bears, you can find something that, that fits your budget and your location. Cool. As long as it's not by yourself in a camper van, I presume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and if yeah if folks wanted to come to churchill um you can follow well my instagram is drew hh and then my company is discover churchill so if you go on instagram and you look up discover churchill or you can go to discoverchurchill.com and it's got a calendar with availability and, and things like that you can shoot us an email through the website yeah i was looking at the website the other day and i was like oh i wish i was up in alaska and could book a tour it'd be so awesome uh, yeah. So, so yeah, come on up whenever, uh, whenever things get back to some semblance of normal, we'll, we'll take you out, see some polar bears. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks very much for being on the show. It's been awesome. Right on. It was my pleasure. Um, you start doing a terrestrial podcast, we can talk about brown bears. <laughs> <laughs> well, one day, one day. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography. And check out the Sea Creatures podcast Instagram at Sea Creatures underscore podcast. If you've liked this show, jump on and support us on Patreon by giving a small monthly donation, which helps with the running costs of the show. Executive production by George McGrath and music by the epic Dan Musil and his awesome slide guitar. Tune in next time to hear all about green sea turtles with Liam Turner, who works on Lady Elliot Island. And it's our first live recorded episode. So hopefully it sounds good. This has been the Secretors Podcast. Over and out.